and welcome back. It's me. That's right. Billy... Billy Porteous here. Um, how have you been? I've been okay. I've got uh, the old COVID uh, vaccine, Mark II now, so I'm dosed up to the eyeballs. That's probably why I'm freaking all over the place. I've done about four separate intros now, and I am like, don't have caffeine when you have flu. I think, not flu, but you know, flu-like symptoms. Jesus Christ, I feel absolutely mental. Um, This week, Paul Mason, it's fantastic. He's a hero of mine. You'll know him from Channel 4, uh, presenting Channel 4. You'll know him from his creative uh, outputs. He's a a writer, uh, amongst other things. Uh, He's a hero of mine. I've seen him speak many a time. I I love his politics. Uh, He accepts no bullshit, which I love. There is no room for fascism. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et there is no room for climate change, so he's kind of on my wavelength in in that regard. And he's um, yeah, I think I think many people you if you do know who who he is, you'll immediately want to know um, more about him because he's his his persona is so I don't know what you'd call it really full. I mean, just full of life. It's simple as that. He's someone that in, in, intelligent, full of life, and his delivery is astonishing. So yeah, it's wonderful. And it's it's quite an old one. I recorded this about four or five months ago in view of the fact that we we did touch quite heavily on climate change. And I thought maybe this summer coming would give us some horrendous, you know, things. And it did. Look what happened in Germany recently. And I mean, it's just horrendous with the, the floods there that killed 120 people. I mean, that's just heartbreaking. And um, it's coming, man. It's coming to us. And I'm not, I don't think I'm stirring shit by saying that. If you think that that's just exclusive to mainland Europe, then wake the fuck up. Okay? Anyway, um, onwards and upwards. Uh, I hope you have been well. I don't know what you might have been up to. Maybe getting sunburn. Yeah, that's it. But the cloud's over now, so it's all over. The fun and games, back to back to rain and what have you. But yeah, I hope you enjoyed last week. Uh, um, Tristan and I talking, rambling on in the beginning. I'm keeping this very short, don't worry. And I, I really enjoyed that chat, man. That, that was a, that, Chad Lawson, what a guy. And if you haven't listened to it, do listen back to it. It's, it's fun, it's fun. Mindfulness, mental health, very important. Um, let's go back really far. Let's think about a podcast I haven't talked about in ages, an episode I haven't talked about in ages. Why not go back and listen to my chat with Jonathan Agnew? Cricket's coming. Cricket is coming. If you like cricket, geez, India are coming. Oh boy. Um, what about Kelly, Kelly Cates? Yeah, Kelly Cates, man. We've just had the Euros. That was a good one. She's a, a wonderful, a wonderful person. Um, yeah, and if and I don't know, if you're into like uh, comedy and writing, why not check out my conversation with Christopher Guest, the, the 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 cult legend, frankly, that is Christopher Guest. So there is a three that you can listen to, and they're all available now on uh, iTunes or wherever the fuck you know. I don't know. Nowadays, you can you can just get them anywhere, anywhere. You can just pick them up in your local like sweet shop. The podcasts are everywhere, and um. I hope you have a good week. I hope this podcast, you know, is is you, it finds you well, man. I hope you're doing okay. I hope um, I don't know work isn't too sticky and boring and and shit. If it is, you know, maybe change change that job um, or not. Maybe stick with it and see see how far you can go. Uh, anyway, look after yourself and um, stay safe. Stay safe. Look after your neighbour. Be kind to your neighbour. And do you know what? If there's a speed limit that says 30 miles an hour, just stick to it. That's what I always think. If it, if it, it says national speed limit, just do the national speed. Limit. There's no need to do 45 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour, is there? Because you could kill a child or, you know, you could run over a badger. You know, just just do 30 in a 30. OK, that's <laughs> a Here's a good old driver, you. All right, then. bye bye Paul Mason is a legend. All right? Legend. Well, 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 there goes the summer.
But what you talk about there, the, the creative process, I think is quite interesting because I think a lot of people just seem to assume that people such as yourself have, have seen it, seen it, done it and everything. They just they can just switch on into like, you know, writing mode and, and but it, whatever creative you are, there are there's definitely a level that we all go to, whether it's political creativity like writing to all the way to, you know, which you have done, obviously stage and what have you to to screenwriting. And that's quite exciting. It's quite cool, man. Like we're all in the same family. Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? To me, everything is journalism. Uh, if I, when I wrote my novel about China, I wrote it because of the frustration of going something like five or six times to China on extended trips and realizing I wasn't even scratching the surface of the story. You know, uh, there's a line in my novel where the, the journalist character, which is not me, but it was a horrible version of me, um, says to the Chinese general, you know, you'll have a minor strike, you'll have the Watts riots, you'll have Hurricane Katrina, but it'll never be on your news. Nobody will even know it's happened. And so, because literally, the, it, it is the memory hall. It's the Orwellian memory hall, Chinese media. And so I thought, well, the only way to write the truth about China is to write a fictional book about what it's probably like inside that machine. You know, mm. we know we know, 100 years from the foundation of the Communist Party, we're 70 odd years from the foundation of the, of the People's Republic of China, the minutes of of the government have never been published at a single meeting. We don't know, there's been no leaks, there's not a single equivalent of the cabinet you know, office minutes that we have at a 30 year distance, Not nothing. So we don't know what's happened. So when I hit a ball like that, I often I often think about fiction as a way of, of, of dealing with it. Um, and so my fiction, when it's there, one novel, three plays, several of the plays that have gone nowhere, um, it's always there to try and fill a gap in journalism's. It sounds highfalutin. You know, in journalism no, no, is, no, no. is journalism is a struggle for truth. That's simply what it is. And yes. when you can't do it, sometimes you've got to try and go in a kind of roundabout route towards the truth through yeah. through fictional writing. That's quite exciting. When did when did you think like um, when we when did you start thinking like that? Was that quite young, or have you always no. like no? No, I mean really. Um, so I started the kind of serious end of my journalistic career. I mean, I was a sub-editor, I was a page designer, I was a proofreader uh, in, in, you know, making tiny business magazines out in the sticks of Surrey, uh, Sutton in oh, Surrey. I know Sutton. Yeah, well, read business information. I, I was my early stage business, uh, journalism career because in my 20s, I've been a professional musician and teacher. So I switched to yeah, journalism when I was yeah. 30. So it took me 30 to get somewhere serious. That took another 10 years to get somewhere serious. So I was 40. And it was just only then when I, when I realised that I was able to produce journalism that people, that, that changed things. For working for a magazine called Computer Weekly. I mean, we did so many exposés of government IT disasters or the Muller Kintyre um, helicopter crash, which was caused, probably caused by software. Things like that yeah. were that I was working on. I thought, right, okay. First of all, you know, your journalism can make a difference, and then mm. you then run into the problem that you can't find everything out. And so, I wanted to. Um, I've always been really a major fan of. We call it reportage. Now you're thinking, what's the difference between reportage? It's just a French word for reporting, and that's all it is. But what we mean by it is literary nonfiction. So Orwell's reportage or, um, you know, any of the other Hemingway, any of the other uh, uh, major writers of the thirties, they were, they were producing a, a crafted nonfiction, Kersler. Um, and, and so that's always been what I've aspired to do either in the written word or on on tape, you know. So, yeah, I mean, for me, I, I when I was a musician, you know, I, I was fully, fully involved in the idea and committed to the idea of abstract art. Mm. Music is completely abstract. Um, well, even if it's, even even if Sibelius says, you know, this this music is 
this core anglais is meant to be evoking a swan flying across a lake. But you could play it to somebody who's not read that and they would think something completely different. It's abstract. But right. but the the creativity and the creation and occasionally art that I've made in the last 20 years has all been concrete. It's been there for a reason. Hmm. Do you I think you're trying to... I, I, I suppose it's almost like trying for yourself to sort of explain... Uh, not explain but get to the bottom of something that we know we'll never get to like in in terms of like when you talk about china and the truth there and your you know dystopian orwellian um i mean it, it for me it's very much like at least what you've described there is trying to get to the bottom of something that you'll never be able to well do it, it, but it's it's a version of that but i think yeah slightly satisfying more, yourself more, yeah, something more specific um particularly when we talk about China, but there are other places like Bolivia with its indigenous culture that I've reported on. Again, I put this into the mouth of somebody in, the, in my novel, Rare Earth, about China, a journalist saying, point is, if you cannot understand China as a Western person unless you start to think like them. And indeed, I don't mean think like them politically, but, but, all, but she means, my character, think in the syntax and grammar of of Mandarin, uh, and as soon as you do, she says, all their arguments make sense. You know, it does make sense to subordinate uh, democracy to and human rights to the, to economic development, because it is a different culture. Mm. And so the the point is, so the trap that we get in that we fall into as outsiders, we look at it and we try and fit it into our mold. This is a classic thing that Western journalists do with Africa. You know the setting sun, the giraffes and silhouetted against the horizon, all this, you know, the cliched stuff. But as soon as you move beyond the cliche into the world you're describing, it's very hard to translate it back to your one. And so this word is overused, but it's well worth using in this regard. Liminal, the liminal spaces are to me the most interesting about where I'm trying to grasp China. It's trying to grasp me. Neither of us is really succeeding, but out of it comes a friction through which little gaps of understanding, little gaps through which understanding can flow. I think that's probably the best I've achieved with the journalism on China. No, that's great. That's such a beautiful way of putting it. Like that's very uh, scientific. This like, uh, yeah, that's really anthropological. It's a scientific thing going on there. I really like that. Um, yeah, that that that's that's quite cool. That's painted a picture in my head really well. I think that's 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 that's, well, that's what any of us journalists that's what we can, can do. Is it for. spoken word? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's lovely. Um, that's take. It's taken me. A, Taking me aback a bit, Paul. All right. Um, but uh, no, um, it's so cool. My my brother-in-law's uh, from Bolivia, and whenever really? Bolivia comes on the news, oh my god, you know some the corruption over there is is beyond anything. And but fuck it, let's not you know you know whatever. But I'm I I really really want to know um, fundamentally because I know you're in music. I know you were in music as a young younger guy, just like 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 me. I I was up. I think I was sort of up to about 32, I think. I was really thinking, I am, I'm still going to make it. It's still going to happen. It's going to, you know, definitely. Rock and roll's coming to me. I mean, I've paid my dues. Listen to these songs, for Christ's sake. They're amazing. What about what about you? When did it sort of... With the, the, and for me, I, I was still... I was 20 when I was marching against uh, Iraq um, yeah. and what have you, and Blair and uh, Bush. Uh, and I was very, you know, politically engaged, but it wasn't really... I suppose until yeah then until twenty till it really kicked on, but I never really properly engaged. When when did you become engaged really? And when did music suddenly? Oh, take a I mean, seat, uh, as it were? Uh, well, the 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 interesting. So I I, I stood I, right. So I come from a musical family on two sides. My my dad was a, a dance band musician in the nineteen. 60s and 70s you know it's playing the sort of the the back end of the stan kenton repertoire and to, okay. to people dancing in a lovely ballroom in lee um and he'd been in the brass band and um played trombone and i played trombone uh my mum's family she had a they had a they were slightly more middle class and they were jewish and and her grand her father had been in a quite a famous 1930s um dance band 
and had a classical training as she did she. So it was all around me. And the first, almost the first thing they said to me is, you're not being a musician. We're not pigeonholing <laughs> you. My dad used to sit there and, and sort of draw pictures of Oxford and Cambridge and say, look, this is where doctors go and lawyers. And I just kind of picked up the trombone age 10 and started playing it and liked it. So I, I went to a school that was very musical. I decided to study music at university. Um, but all around me was um, social unrest. You know, this was 1978, the winter of discontent. Blair Peach, oh. is mur Blair Peach murdered by the police, uh, the anti-Nazi league, then the steel strike. And I just got dragged into very quickly in Sheffield, where I went to university, um, into the politics. Uh, and I, in those days, I don't know whether it's true today, if you did a, a big major subject like music, you had to choose another humanity or art subject right. to, yeah. to do in your first year to just stop yourself going crazy. And I chose politics and I enjoyed it so much that I switched to a semi half politics, half music degree, which I really, they said, you can do it as long as you don't tell anybody this degree exists. <laughs> and, and to this day, there's only two people who's ever, because another guy had the same idea that a year later. There's two of us who've had the idea of doing a music and politics degree. So we designed our own degree and got it. And um, But because I was a gobby leftist by then, I, I didn't really, you know, averagely in the politics, uh, because they're marking you down for, a, you know, not considering all sides. But on the music yeah. side of it, with, with, if you've got something called perfect pitch, which means you can name any note when it's played to you. It's quite easy to do. And, and it's quite easy to get like 100% in an exam, which is, you know, I think today there would be like a, something it would be tweaked to avoid that. So because I did quite well, well, really well in the music. So I then set off as a, in, into a career as a music teacher, a musicologist and composer. And um, the only problem with all of those things is that in the 80s, there was an absolute dearth of money. There isn't now. It's superb. You see places like Guildhall, Goldsmiths, you know, uh, there's lots of money for, for, the, for the creative arts. And, no, and yeah. then there wasn't. So I ended up as um, teaching the, in the drama department at Loughborough University, teaching music. And also was a theatre music director for about a year. And, um, and I came to London thinking, I, you know, probably like you, that I could make it as, as that, as doing that. Hmm. And, and I didn't really. So I switched back to teaching for a few years, uh, which was immensely enjoyable and, and also challenging. But then I thought, well, no, sod it. I, I'm, I'm going to do something I actually like. Uh, and I mean, in the sense that I like and it likes me. Um, yes. Yeah, no, so yeah, I exactly. up, yeah, but you, yeah, I ended up doing, I, I, I went in the absolute bargain basement of journalism around about, 90, <laughs> about 1990 well i've started um, a, a, um doing an article for my local newspaper called yeah. the dis express where i live in norfolk and uh i just said to them look could i just do a piece of blah 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 once a once a fortnight and they were like yeah great whatever and i thought fuck what really um but no it's really cool that you um I love I love your um what you said there which is really important and I don't think a lot of people realize this is the 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 relationship between what you want to do and does it want to to come back to you do you know what I mean does it yeah. want to give back to you that's so important isn't it that symbiosis that you know it, it's often overlooked I think I think that's why music didn't work for me I think that's why a few few things haven't worked for a lot of people where they they want to do something they want to be a, a great singer but hang on look you know dude it's, there's a reason it's not I mean working. there are the, the absolute geniuses are the people who've broken the mold and set the mold themselves reset it and mm. unless you're going to do that it's quite you know which i wasn't um it's quite a it's you know what's the point however right. as soon as i stopped um academically studying music because theoretically i was doing a phd for most of the 1980s i never did much on it but as soon as i stopped obsessing about analyzing music and i started enjoying it and i think in many ways just the relief of putting away the piano, mm. selling the trombone, you know, getting instruments that I wanted to play, and then l deeply immersing myself in what I now love, which is opera and 19th century music uh, and some 20th century music, which is what I studied, um, I, and world music. Uh, I, I suddenly felt more like a musician again. I suddenly felt that, that, that music was um, at the core of what I wanted to experience, but it wasn't my job anymore. It wasn't, um, 
I hadn't got to kind of climb a ladder and, you know, because ac academic musicology was, is, is really, it's a sort of, it's a bit, it's got, it's quite akin to computer programming, you know, okay, it's quite yeah. akin yeah. to the analysis of patterns and, um, and it's very nerdy and it's very male or it was very male at the time, very nerdy maleiness. And, um, yeah. and, uh, so I thought, well, no, this is good. No, I'm out of that. And I can just go to a Wagner opera without the score, without wondering whether another musicologist is sitting three rows behind me, uh, yeah. wondering if I'm getting it right. And I just let mm. myself immerse, be immersed in the music. And um, that's when I really started enjoying it. No, it's interesting what you talked about there, the core, the core of you, um, and learning and learning to access that. It's a very important part of it, isn't it? I mean, I, I think you were... I mean, I've seen you speak a couple of times. I was at a um, Compass night, and or not not a Compass night. It was um, it was something run by Neil uh, Neil Lawson, yeah. and, and what have you. And I think a few uh, um, Clive Lewis was there, and a couple of Lib Dems and Greens or what have you. And you you were there as well. And you you, you whenever I see you, you're always so full of energy. Like you're really tapped into something. Like there's 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 something that drives you, Paul. And you're quite an intense person. Um, <laughs> yeah. We can talk about the def the, def the definition of that word, but maybe not. Um, some people get offended by that word. But what do you think drives you, like it's over the years, or has driven? I think. You? Well, what drives me is the is the absolute um, bitterness and anger that one felt to see a civilization and a culture that you'd grown up in deliberately smashed by Thatcherism. See, my, you know, the town I grew up in, I had my first pint in the pub my granddad had his first pint in, you know, uh, a miners pub by a canal, you know, it's beautiful. You know, I played my first game of bowls with my granddad. He taught me to do it. He'd probably been yeah. taught by his dad, you know. So we're talking about a tradition now. I think I'm part of a cultural folk tradition going back to the last half of the 19th century even though i was born in 19, in 1960 the bowling greens have been ripped up their car parks the pub is closed the mine is closed every decent job in my town is gone and to see that done in, in any way it could have been tragic but it wasn't just tragic it was deliberate and vindictive and so once that started under thatcher I, you know that's what's driven me ever since now the point is a lot of people similar to me who lived through that are quite backward looking but i you know through embracing and studying technological change and and and, and digital technology came to the conclusion that that in fact the 20th century was going to be really exciting and that the modernity in which we live which is full of non-binary people the new kind of people transgender people lgbt people that's the new world and any attempt to sort of look back is just nostalgia it's you know you can, occasionally you can have a bit of nostalgia nothing wrong with it but it's not you can't live on it and so the yeah i am yes i am quite driven um that i don't do anything unless i do it 100 percent um well that yeah uh, definitely yeah and i do that because you know i think there's there's so little point in sort of drifting along when there's so many injustices in the world that could be sorted. And the critique mm. of them is important. People don't, you know, people, people on the left spend a lot of time sort of doing routine algorithmic resistance to things, you know. So right now we're talking about the, the Al-Aqsa Mosque being invaded by the Israelis. It's on fire. Yeah. About. So we, yeah. will, you know, we will resist that. But more important to me is to make the, the the moral and ethical and intellectual and emotional case of why things are wrong. And I don't think you can do that in a half-hearted manner. Mm. No, no, I, 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 I mean, but they, we're talking about issues that are so enormous, but so fundamental, uh, Israel, Palestine, what have you, Thatcherism, um, it, attacking what your core of who you were the core of what your grandfather was and his grandfather etc in when where do you begin but what i wanted to go there because there's so many points you've just raised there that are just really warm me but in a kind of a sick way because they're so <laughs> fucked up 
they're so fucked up. And like you think about where we are now, what the first thing that sprung to mind when you were describing your childhood was where we are now in terms of blue, the blue wall essentially, or the red wall being taken over, almost turned to a blue wall. And people like your grandfather, where he's still around, would might possibly be voting for Boris Johnson now. I mean, where, where are possibly we would be Possibly would be. Yeah. Because actually, you know, it's a myth that those working class communities were always progressive. My, my granddad um, was a miner. Um, he, he, he threw a paperback book into the fire um, because it had the word bastard printed in it. Uh, it was a novel, right? Um, he, he was devoutly religious. And when he stood for a position in the National Union of Mine Workers, he did it as an anti-communist. No, he was somebody who'd been on strike and violently on strike and been uh, almost today. If you looked at him, he's lucky he's not alive today because he'd be see he'd be categorised as an almost pathological um, resistor, you know, uh, Migrano. Uh, yeah. But but yeah, yes, today he might indeed be uh, one of those people, and certainly some of the people who are from that community. Mm. You know, who've been voting for UKIP and the rest of it. Um, but you've got to understand what's happened to them. They had an amazing culture. When neoliberals, you know, right-wing economics people, tell me that human humanity is naturally acquisitive and competitive, I say to them, look, it may be for you, and it may be 100% now that we are all individualised homo economicus, but I know that it cannot be a general law of human nature because I grew up in a society where that was not the case. Spontaneous, you know, solidarity and cooperativism were, were the order of the day. Um, see, my granddad, just to talk about him, he was a, quite a violent person to everybody around him. Uh, and when the okay, class struggle yeah. took place, he was violent to people he didn't like. He, he mm. threw a fascist through a, a shop window. Um, but um, he also had a social role that was very interesting because he was a rescue person down the mines and could swim, which was not a common thing in those days. They lived on the edge of a canal and people either through drunkenness or suicidal tendencies often ended up in that canal. It's a quite weird thing that, I mean, nobody fell in it in my time, but lots of people used to either get drunk or become suicidal and throw themselves into the canal. And um, right. my granddad's informal job was to save them. And, and nobody told him, nobody sort of designated him this. He didn't have a little high-vis thing. But right. he spent quite a lot of his time, according to my father, basically um, saving people who were drowning and teaching children how to swim. Now, today, so all those things are done formally, aren't they? I mean, who would get near right. a, 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 a child swimming lesson informally? Absolutely not. But... Yeah. The thing is, that world in which they grew up was was spontaneously cooperative and solidaristic uh, and empathetic. I would also argue it, 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 it had a concept of virtue. It had a concept, as Aristotle teaches us, of what's the good society and what does a good human being look like in that society, even if that supposedly good human being was getting trashed every Saturday night and brawling in the street. There was still a sort of, um, there was still a sort of organic concept of what is good. And um, mm. that's what got taken away from those communities. Now, without that, what's left to them? What's left is, you can hear my accent, we all speak like this, or I mean, they speak mm. a, lot, a lot more broader um, Mm. Lanc Lancashire accent than I do. They all know each other. Um, they are mainly white. They are mainly Catholic and Protestants, Christians, and they mainly, you know, don't like the next rugby team in the next town, the next, <laughs> the next pit village over the other side of the yeah. hill. Um, that's the level of uh, what defines them. And so, what's happened is that young men in those in those communities get pushed. Into, it's not it's not just the elderly who've gone in this kind of racist xenophobic direction there are lots of young men and their world is what their world is the gym their world is uh dodgy steroid dealing their world is security guard work um it it's suddenly become a little bit like the wire and so mm. 
for to gain this self-esteem you you you're doing what you're projecting a, a masculinity that many people in a big city or a big corporation would find very difficult you you're assertively well you're asserting your right to speak in a certain way that a lot of people in liberal society find disgusting that's what then that's the, the culture that is that, that is there now and there are people in, indeed in the town i come from there's a, a fantastic group of youth workers and young men who've decided to do projects around masculinity and what why is masculinity so toxic in our community why is domestic violence so prevalent it's brilliant that they do that but what i'm saying is that where we are now in politics this problem of the collapse of laborism in those small town working class communities it, it, it's perfectly understandable because that just smashed the, the thing that was all in it together yeah. uh, and i think that what, if we are to come out the other side we have to build something else that holds things together other than whiteness white supremacy straight supremacy masculinity that mm. we've got to build something better than that i mean that <laughs> yeah I mean, that's the thing that's, I think that's why when I go to uh, um, a compass meeting or what have you, not a meeting, but, you know, a get together, general get together of a liberally driven, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, really. Gather, it's like a gathering of minds to try and ease our, our woes, I suppose, headed by Neil meeting. Lawson. Let's call it a meeting. Again, a meeting. Yeah. Um, it's. It's just so goddamn hard to know. And like, is this the problem with the left? Is it? Is it that um, we're just not? All, is it, it's not organisation. Cl clearly, it's not organisation. Oh, we're pretty organised. No, the problem, the problem yeah. is everything's about identity. Everything in politics is now about cultural identity and economic identity. Because people, it's not when I say culture, I don't mean that you know what defines the Uber driver is the the. Uh, Maybe the, the Ethiopian flag hanging from the from the from the, the rear view uh, mirror. No, it's it identity, values, and culture have come to replace pure class interest and the traditional class divide that, that I've just been describing at great length. Mm. Uh, no, that's a fact. Um, and those of us in progressive politics, we face a dilemma: parties and movements that call themselves progressive, must first and foremost represent progressive people. Um, we have to represent the values of people who pay the money, turn up to the meetings, um, go and do the work, and, and they want to vote on what the policies are. That's, that's 21st century life. So, you, you know, what, however much we want to reach out to people who don't share our political and cultural values, what we cannot do is embody their values. That's it's we can you know it's it's quite a difficult thing to say but we can't do that we we can have a meeting of the Labour Party or of a trade union meeting where where somebody turns up and says you know for example I don't I don't necessarily think women should be paid equally to men we, we're working harder we can have a meeting where that's said we can have a meeting where it's said um, why are migrants coming to take our jobs you know again very painful to hear it used to be really it was everywhere that kind of sentiment in the 60s and 70s but it's been mm. suppressed out of discussion but it's there you can have meetings that say that what you can't have is meetings where people say we need to run the romanian migrants up in a van take them to dover put them on a ship and i don't care where they go after that 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 yeah. is that's the beginnings of, of, of fantasizing about ethnic cleansing and what you've mm. got to be able to do is say well i'm sorry in this environment we don't know, we don't speak like that it's the same with anti-semitism it's the same with islamophobia um mm. you know so the pro no matter how many concessions we the progressives want to make to people who are reactionary we cannot make the concession of representing their ideas they must represent mm. their ideas and in the end if you see what happened with trump versus biden you know there was very little middle ground there was millions of people tens of millions of people believe that everything that trump says you know that 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 uh biden's a communist that he's a yeah, chinese yeah. agent etc so in the end you've just got to mobilize more progressive people than there are reactionary people but some of the people you can mobilize are people 
who are not devoutly committed to this reactionary credo of, of, of Islamophobia, racism, anti-feminism, misogyny, the rest of it, but, but, but are there because of peer pressure and they don't see an alternative. Yeah. What's happened in the British uh, electoral, you know, the May the 6th, 2021, uh, massive regional and local election round is that Labour went into those uh, elections without any vision, without any clear alternative of what it was arguing. And, and that's not an accident. It did so because, we, look, we're facing, I don't, I don't know whether your your audience is, is massively um, international, so, so I will explain. City no, like do, Bristol, do. Yeah. City like Bristol, you know, the place where they chucked the, they threw the, the slave, uh, the slave owner's um, statue into the river, um, it's just gone green. It's about, it, people, People said, well, we had a riot. The Labour mayor condemned the rioters, just like what's happening in Portland, Oregon. So, right, well, who do we vote for then? Well, let's vote for the Greens. So you had a big movement to the left, away from Labour, to the Greens. Um, at the same time, in lots and lots of those small-town ex-industrial communities, even though the process is people saying, no, we've had enough of Labour, all this political correctness, we don't want to see statues thrown in the river, so we're going to vote Conservative. Um, trapped in the middle of it is a political tradition that its only response for about 10, 15 years has been, look, everybody, underneath, we're all the same. Underneath, we all have the same problems. And yes, we do. Underneath, um, somebody in Hartlepool is just as facing, you know, rip off employment practices, bullying and humiliating situations at work, can't buy their own home, uh, wages are crap. Yes, ult ultimately, they do. But the problem is that's not how they feel the world. They experience the world through their identity. And Labourism just hasn't got its head around that. It's sit, literally sitting there going, hey, everyone, calm down. Think about something else. Um, who are the most successful political forces in the, in the, the United Kingdom? We could list them. Scottish nationalism about identity. Cons you know, Right-wing conservatism about identity. Um, obviously, in Northern Ireland, republicanism about identity, um, Protestant, you know, Ulster loyalism about identity. And here's the interesting thing, Greens, obviously, about a kind of identity, that's growing. Um, but really interesting, Welsh Labour, because Welsh Labour managed to project an identity politics of being working class and Welsh. Um, so it's the English left that is in deep trouble. Uh, and we have to start on sort of accepting as it, I, I'm a very reluctant English person. I was brought up to think I was British. I never thought about England. Um, mm. Because what have I got in common with somebody in, in kind of from the commuter belt of, you know, the, the, the stockbroker belt of, of, of Southeast England? Nothing. Yeah. Um, I've got more, a lot more in common with a Glaswegian worker or a Belfast mm. worker. So the point is, yes, but, but I am English. And if Scotland goes, if it leaves in uh, the United Kingdom, then England is going to be, how I'll have to do you know, English is how I'll be defining myself. So we have to start thinking about what our our positive English progressive identity is. And I do, yeah, absolutely. It still foxes me though. You've done a damn good job of dis, uh, explaining that to me and whoever's listening. Um, I'm still confused though. I still, in terms of trying to trying to work, trying to get that square shape it into a circle or something, or whatever. I'm still trying to form that in my head the identity factor um because i think i'm lazy i think not lazy i think i'm very of that hey we're all under we're, we're all my lot all the century whatever just get on with life i like i like gay people i like um whatever people i'll just get on with everyone um left kind of thing yeah um I don't know why I can't articulate myself tonight. I think it's because <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm sat opposite, you know, in a computer world, cyberly, cyberly, oh, in a cyber way, opposite someone who's so, um, I wish I was in a pub with you actually. Be oh yeah, we, that would be even better we, because you can stop me talking by make, by make, getting me some drink, my fine. But all right, well, no, I think... I'm just sorry, Paul. What what I'm basically trying to say is, um, I get I get what you're, where you're coming from. I just wish to fucking yeah. God, um, 
that Labour did. I, I wish that there wasn't this goddamn tag because I used to be a Liberal Democrat and now I'm a Labour member. I don't really know um, where they go from here. And it, well, and it really, the other day, really, just really quickly, because this was part of my question, was they had uh, Ian Duncan Smith, William Hague, they had those, the, the Tories had that, that bad batch of leaders, right? When they were struggling for identity, yeah. can, can, the, can I, Labour learn from I, that? I don't sort? see Labour... The, the lens through which I look at the world is not the Labour Party and its problems. I, I see the world as, as a struggle between classes between and power groups. And, and that struggle happens whether parties want it to or not. It's happening now. You know, two weeks ago, I went on the streets on the Kill the Bill demo against the policing bill. Um, a couple of weeks before that, I was on the Sisters Uncut demo against domestic, against, not domestic, but against violence against women. You know, yes, yeah. Was a, it was a, these movements are happening. Um, the, the movement of, of British gas workers against being sacked and rehired, fire and rehire, they call it. Um, mm. these, they may seem unglamorous to people, but what happens when movements take place is people discover something quite unusual that they, they never thought about before because the world seems sorted. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. Your only chance of getting rich are, is to become a you know, premiership football player or a TikTok influencer. And then suddenly, there they are, the world changes because of action that they've taken. And it, to me, this, this is an incredibly basic human trait that our DNA makes us all one of the few um, animals that can consciously, uh, probably the only animal that can consciously shape the world through action. That think, I, I want to, the beach currently looks like this. I'm going to build a big sandcastle. You know, um, it, it's not. It's not a kind of. It's not a sort of unthinking thing. Let's design the sandcastle. Let's get everybody involved, and let's have a great. Let's have a great sort of afternoon on the beach, building a giant sandcastle for everybody's kids. We are the only species that we know that does that kind of shit. Okay, now that yeah. translates socially into. Do you know what? I've I've just stopped my employer from from sacking me, and I've forced them to take us all back, right? Well, what else can we do? Uh, let's imagine other things that we can do. Struggle, to me, whether it be class struggle, anti-racist struggle, struggle against sexism and homophobia, is the thing that that transforms human beings into hopeful and creative people. And I think that that happens whether Keir Starmer is leader, whether John, whether uh, Corbyn is leader, who, whoever, Angela Rayner is deputy leader, so it's that the, the 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 art of politics is to translate that pressure into where it matters, which is politics. Because without people doing it, it the low level struggles will remain low level. So for me, a political party is everybody getting together saying, "No, you know what? The the elite think they're getting going to get away with letting the world burn and and kind of making rubbish pledges at COP twenty six. Let's turn up at COP twenty six." and not go away until we actually force them into a legally binding pathway to zero net carbon. That's what I'm going mm. to try and do this year. And if we do it, you'd see, just as we saw in the, in the Arab Spring and in the Occupy movement, people who have been written off for decades as useless, suddenly making history. Um, that's mm. my model of politics. And parties only fit into it because at a certain level of it, they, they become necessary. So what I mean, just for a split second, what my my mind has gone drawn towards there is it's almost like what you really want is Labour as a movement or a political party as such as a movement to be able to harness, go to some of these um, movements and listen to what they're saying and try and get more of an understanding of where the struggle is. Yeah. See, I've always... If I was in Hartlepool, which Labour just lost, I'd say, right, who are the 7,000 people who voted for us? Let's go and find them. Um, that would involve having a, a party that was active and, and outward-looking. So let's go and find them. And then let's say to them something that probably nobody's ever really said to them before. What do you want us to do? Because instead, of, parties generally go, here's our policy, or vote for us, or come into a branch meeting. They don't, what they don't say is, what would you like us to actually do? What's the one change in your life that really matters to you? And how can we make it happen? I've seen this done, mainly not by parties. There was a fantastic 
groups called group called Citizens UK. Started from a group called London Citizens in the East End of London. Now, they yeah, you know, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Organizing method uh, that was pioneered by an American leftist called Saul Alinsky uh, in the fifties. He was the person who whose tradition Obama came from, community organizing. So they said, well, they started with churches. They went to churches and said, who comes to the church in East End? In the East End, Nigerian people, Colombian people. Catholic Church, lots of Nigerians, Colombians. What do they do? Well, they clean. What's their problem? They, they don't get any money. They're treated like shit. Right. Well, let's not wait for the unions to do something about that. Can your church and your church and your mosque and your synagogue and your Gurudwara turn up outside HSBC and we'll, with, in high vis and we'll give leaflets out? Wow. I, I was there when they did it, you know, and... HSBC, this huge skyscraper and, and the Canary Wharf, had never seen anything like it. Um, yeah. That's what a party needs to do. No, I think I'm quite, I, I'm not massively hopeful that Labour can transform itself in that direction because it's just so much full of people with the kind of attitude of what we call in business studies, who moved my cheese? You know, the, the most the most gets a, you know, a little morsel of cheese every night and, and yeah. you know, somebody moves the cheese, the most is still waiting for the cheese to appear. The, the cheese yeah. has been moved, guys. We have to go and find it. Where is it? Um, right. And, you know, if you're like Deputy Undersecretary, Deputy Undersecretary of the Membership Department of the Labour Party of Tone X, to be told, forget all that, you're going on the doorstep and we're going to go and clean up a playground. Yeah. We might, yeah. We're going to actually, we're going to paint the swings on the playground. You'd be saying, no, oh, I wanted to be, yeah, I didn't join politics to do this. I joined it to be doing my spreadsheet of the membership. And we've got to learn to sort of just say, well, what the people want is what party's supposed to, 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 to do. And you know where I get this from? Partly my experience as a Leninist in the 1980s, you, there's a lot of, um, bad stuff said about the far left, um, often quite rightly. It's utterly bureaucratic and be quite thuggish and very small-minded. But the one thing I learned in the, on the far left is agitation is a dialogue with working people. You are there to listen to them and to, to hear what they are trying to say to you, no matter how hard and, and often un, unpalatable some of it is to, to hear, you've got to then take that somewhere on a journey and i think we in labor have got to learn to do that do they want to do that do, does, do keir starmer and angela whoever the hell in the new the new look the new uh, post coke corbyn labor even pre-corbyn whatever do they want to do that though that's no, what i feel i feel they've lost that no because i, I think it's not a new thing either the labor party has no. never been that kind of agitational party it's never been that party that had a massive amount of democracy and that and that transformed workers' struggles or anybody's struggles into a dynamic kind of force to change society. It, Labourism was designed by Sidney and Beatrice Webb, the Fabians, as they would call it, um, as a as a top-down thing. You know, these are the people who invented coming into your home and taking your children away uh, if you were if you were a drunkard. You know, that, that is, they said, you know, the working class are, you know, by and large, you know, feckless, drunk, uneducated. We need to yeah. lead them. And when I went, when, when they're mistreating their children, you know, have no problem. You just go in with social services. Um, no, sometimes that has to happen. But, if you, but what I'm trying to say is that they had a paternalistic view of the working class as pretty helpless. And so they constructed the Labour Party as a, as a trade union funded Lib left liberal party of lawyers. The fact that Keir Starmer's a lawyer is no accident. They, they were nearly all lawyers or or social so, kind Informers. of early social workers. Clement Attlee was a kind of early social worker. And um, yeah, so Labour has always been set up to deliver reforms from below, um, from, from above to those below. It's been the left parties that were designed to draw in uh, and, and some hybrids like, you know, 
a lot of people might have heard of the so-called Wobblies, the, the industrial workers of the world before World War One. They were half party, half trade union, half half cultural movement. And I think I'm so obsessed with the idea of creating a from below grassroots cultural sporadic movement uh, because I know that that's really what changes things. Mm. That's so exciting though, Paul, but that's what we need. Like, but for me, the, the new thing, not the new thing, Jesus wept, I suppose you could say the Greta Thunberg thing or the Extinction Rebellion. Um, that is something that needs to be tapped into immediately and, and from from Labour. I always think that like God, climate change is always just such, it, it, and for me, speaking like, if I'm honest, I couldn't give a, not like I couldn't give a shit about climate change, but during Brexit, I mean, what? Climate change, what? You know, the, come on, European Union, man. That's what we, Now it's, for me, I don't know what's happened. Maybe it's because there has been a break from Brexit owing to COVID-19. But for me, the absolute agenda is is the green agenda. And that, that if you're going to talk about grassroots, grassroots movement, is attached to so many other things. You talk about, you know, social unrest, unrest and poverty. People who are on the breadline can't bloody well think about uh, recycling and saving the the fucking planet, can they? Like, well, it's, and I think why, they why why should we expect them to? Like, when they're they're suffering so. Do you know much? what? Do you know what? One of the reasons is is because their children are really concerned about it. Lots. The, sure. the younger you go down, it doesn't matter whether you're um, whether you're ultra poor and you're living in a tiny council flat and your kids aren't even allowed to play in the playground because it's reserved for the people in the luxury flats the poor doors, or, you know, all reasonably well off. Your kid is coming home from school, age six or seven, very concerned about climate change. And so I think that's number one. To me, climate inserts a ticking clock into all the other struggles. So when I was, you know, 20, I thought the struggle was for socialism to, you know, get rid of capitalism, have something... I thought would, would, was socialism, and that's it. Um, now, I have to accept that um, we need to decarbonize this planet by 2050. Um, even on the most optimistic timescale, um, capitalism will still be here in 2050, or a, a kind of remnant of it, even if we were all, all the left parties were to get into power. So climate makes us have to take... Um, to make compromises and to take the hard choices that sometimes left parties didn't want to do. But mm. having said that, I mean, I, I, for me, there is a triangle of, of issues. There is the issue of moving forward to a socially just society through basic income, through basic services, through shorter working day, week, life, that, what I call post-capitalism, utilizing the, the power of, of digital technology and automation to, to make life better quickly for everybody. Mm. That means taking the wealth off the rich. That's 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 part one. That's the first pillar of, of, of what I think is important. The second pillar is we've got to do that in the context of the urgent struggle to mitigate climate change. That is, we've got to stop. We, we can't say social justice here and then maybe climate, you know, maybe climate justice. Climate justice and social justice have to be melded onto each other no and that's not necessarily a natural thing because you might have to say you know in an ideal world you'd want to move quickly beyond the automobile not just to ev cars but beyond the automobile but in a socially just world when the whole whole world is constructed around the automobile you're not really going to be able to do that so the stages of change but what's the third problem the third pillar of what i think should be a progressive politics has to be anti-fascism because because fascism is coming back this is what my next book is about yeah i'm very interested about this on, on capitol hill on the 6th of january we saw the leader of the most powerful person in the world encourage a fascist mob to storm one of the oldest democratic legislatures in the world with fascist symbols this is not like a an aberration it's there it's happening in brazil it's happening in india france next year we'll see a major push by the far right for power and what we can't i'd say to everybody 
just as I say to socialists, you can't be obsessed with socialism to the to the to the exclusion of climate. I'd say to the climate people and the socialists, you as well as your positive thing that you're trying to do, you must realize that the, the obstacle to it is not just states, it's not just Boris Johnson or you know the Daily Mail. It's a it's a movement that wants to kill you. It's a movement that wants you to put you in a concrete box and gas you. And it is it is all right, the, the, the small fascist parties are not that frightening. They're pretty terrifying when they're sending you death threats and the rest of it. The big problem is the fascist ideology that is embedding itself into the minds of, of thousands, maybe millions of people. The, the, the great replacement theory, the idea that whites are being genocided by migration. Right. You know? Christ, so yeah. to me, what I would like to leave your listeners with is the idea of the threefold struggle for social justice, for climate justice, and against fascism. I think that is what the left has to unite around. Mm, no, no, yeah, sorry. I know you're, oh, we said an hour. This is so annoying. I know. We'll do another like 10 minutes and then let's I'll just do another 10 because then I've got to go um, and have some uh, supper. It's like bloody hell, you haven't, you've eat, you're eating late, aren't you? Jesus. No, I eat, it, I eat in the middle, during the lockdown, me and my family, we eat in the middle of the day. So when, when right. it comes late at night, we just have like a, a, a biscuit and a piece of cheese. Because I think it's more comfortable to eat, eat, eat European style in the middle of the day. Yeah. And, it, yeah, and if no, we had I, European style weather, we could be eating in the garden, but it's bloody freezing, as you know. It's very, very cold. So oh, go on, just ask um, me one more question then, maybe. Well, no, Paul, the thing is, it's just a big one because I know you from uh, the telly box. You know, I not grew up, but pretty much close to watching you uh, uh, present uh, um, in different various continents around the world or what have you. And you always stood out, mate. I mean, no, most Channel 4 presenters, uh, you know, uh, whether it's Jon Snow or Christian or whoever, they all they all stand out um, wonderfully well. Um, where do you get where did you get your own style from? What not get it from? But how essential, did you, how important to you was it that you retained some of your own personality? Because I'll tell you for now, when I start doing this podcast, when I interview people, I do ch tend to change who I am a bit. I'm trying to get better at being true to myself. But when yeah. you're presenting, you're it's 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 fucking incredible. It's well, so intense. It's wonderful. I couldn't do it when I, I couldn't when I started. I was useless. In fact, this guy this guy who recruited me said, "Well, normally in these circumstances, we just look at someone someone like you, and then you just went and he just shook his head and went like, no." Uh, but for some reason, they gave me a job. So they had to train me to do it. But what they tell you in television is be yourself only 5% more. Now, I think I understood that. Be yourself only 5% more. I had, was really lucky to, well, unlucky and lucky. I had a, a growth on my vocal cords, um, which had to be taken off. And so afterwards, I had to, I couldn't speak. And, but I had a job on the telly. So I had to pretty urgently get um, speech therapy and which it, so my voice came back in a, in a few days and weeks and then i said to the speech therapist look i find it very difficult to express myself naturally and relaxedly i think i'm just over hyping everything she said well why don't you just go and get some um, voice training and i said well i don't want to lose my accent so i found a superb voice trainer who works you know works in the national theater and she said yeah you're you're, you're just too tense you're not you're not saying what you believe and, and I sat down with some of my colleagues on Newsnight, was working at the time. I said, "We've all got this problem, haven't we?" And they said, "Yeah, you know what the problem is? We're sitting there on 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 air, and we're all terrified that we're going to blurt out that George Bush is a, or Tony Blair is a war criminal. You know, that we're we're censoring ourselves, and that's why our voices sound so stilted." And this uh, superb voice teacher um, taught me to 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 speak from here, to speak from from your stomach. Tell, speak what you're feeling. And um, mm. I mean, we all do it naturally. If I was with you in the pub, I wouldn't even be drawing on any of those techniques. But when I'm on yeah. TV, yeah, there is a technique of saying, well, I, I always love this. Your generation might not even remember Sid James, the comedy actor. <laughs> no, 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 of course. Yeah. yeah Carry yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In one, of his, in one of the obituaries to him, somebody said, I think it was Barbara Windsor said, Sid James was a natural at being natural. And I've, as a broadcaster, I've always aspired to that. Try and be a natural at being natural. And yeah, mm. you've just got to try and just, what you've got to do, just chill out, calm down, look around you, think, you know, 
think like the Fonz, you know, like Fonzie, every everything's <laughs> going around you go, hey, like this. And then, right. and then and then also empathize and, and, and listen to people, actually listen to what people are saying to you. And those two things got me through a lot of scrapes, you know, through through you know, I can remember being in a, a, a rural market in Nigeria where there was ethnic tension and uh the butchers on this market who all had like bush meat unfortunately and live monkeys and things they thought we were filming them we were only there to film gvs general views but they thought that we the white people there were no cops around and they actually did march up to us with their machetes and um and i i, I can't remember what one of them had a juventus shirt on and i just started talking to him about juventus um right. <laughs> i just said well, you know how do, how do you think juventus are doing this year i mean you right. know it's like you just got to do 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 that. It's not it's not exactly be the same. A human being. You just got to be chilled out with people, and in general, yeah, like in Gaza with both the Israelis and the Palestinians. You know, if you're chilled out with people, they generally they just they see somebody with a camera. They want to tell their story, but often that white male person who's standing there in front of the camera is actually an obstacle to them telling their story. So you've got to right. learn to be a conduit for their story. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, like, like, go on. Sorry, go on, Paul. No, no. Well, I was just going to say, like, that is, in in many ways, a mirror, right? I mean, not a mirror, but I, when you when you explain that to me, there, I'm thinking about Israel Palestine. I'm thinking, like, you know, just put a, you know, trying to trying to bring the human side of it to, which is Channel Four's always been really reasonably good at doing. Well, television is very formulaic. Television will 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 try and set up conflicts where they don't exist, or they'll try and say it'll try and fit everything into three minutes. One of my greatest inspirations was a, a friend and colleague, Martin Adler, who got killed unfortunately. In there's no award named after him. He got killed in Mogadishu in Somalia, and um, mm. shot dead. Uh, and while filming, I remember. And yeah, one of his films is called Charlie Company. You probably find it on on YouTube. And what, what it was, he was with, embedded with an American Marine company in Iraq. And most people who are like that, well, you know, what are you doing? You're effectively making a mini war movie or a, a news report. And Martin just st stood there with his camera. And I call this the unflinching gaze. He watched them fuck everything up. He watched them yeah. try and arrest somebody. And this person resisted. And you think they would just wrestle him to the ground and cuff him and all the rest. They couldn't, they couldn't do it. So for about five minutes, there's this ridiculous fight going on with soldiers and, and a guy in his shawbar kameez in the dust. Nobody's winning. It looks ridiculous. And Martin just stands there watching it. And, and what is more, he didn't edit it out. He just put the whole five minutes of ridiculousness. That's what George Orwell does. It's what the great reportage journalists did. You know, Michael Hare, dispatches. You point the camera at the ridiculous banality of what is happening and you don't over dramatize it i'm a big fan of that method and form of storytelling i've got goosebumps on my arm i'm not <laughs> i'm not i'm not shitting you i really have and like oh it's it's so true isn't it just the, the truth right the truth and it's such a shame that but we're not down a pub but never mind, fuck it. Um, well, I'll have we'll to do another one. Well, let's do another one live yeah. from the pub at some point. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, imagine that one day. Well, we can. It's happening soon, hopefully. Yeah. And the the annoying thing, my mate Dave is going to get on it to me. One, I didn't ask him the question that he. Um, I didn't ask you the question he gave me to ask to give you. But also, we didn't um, really go in at uh, talking about the the Boris Johnson because he's always at me saying why are you slagging off Corbyn, why are you slagging off Starmer, or whatever. When you don't ever going at Johnson and stuff, which is maybe just for another podcast because that yeah, guy is I mean, just like, you, you know. Yeah, I mean, Johnson is, is, Johnson is the punishment we deserve for not being organised. You know, yeah, the yeah. fact that a kind of complete shyster, you know, uh, somebody with no focus, no ability, uh, really, you know, people who've worked with him, so he can't focus on anything, he can't achieve things. He just picks yeah. things up, drops them and breaks them. That guy is running our country and destroying it because we are not organised and because people think it's too important to do something else rather than make the hard yards of of literally turning 60 or 70 seats that we need to win into places where there's a living and thriving opposition movement. Um, yeah. To do that, you have to get out of your 
comfort zone. I have to get out of my comfort zone whenever I'm in those places. Um, mm. It's easier to have the comfort zone, to be honest, because who does want to listen to a load of right-wing bullshit every day? But we're going right. to have to do that, you know. No, I get it. But look, mate, thank you so much for your time. And uh, before you go, you have suddenly turned into Elvis Costello with the fading light. You just I have, but the light's something. gone, and, I, yeah. and I'm, there's no just yeah. like golem-like <laughs> face on the thing. But that means that means that um, that it's probably time for me to go to bed soon. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to go to Chelsea. Okay, mate, look after yourself, hey, and thank you so much. When this comes out, just send me the the link, and I'll tweet it. And it was great talking to you. I, I never yeah, asked you about you. you. Maybe I'll do one where I talk to you about your work. I'll be good. Well. It would maybe just set up another podcast in a, in, in a few months' time. That would be nice. Yeah. Send me the link. <laughs> nice one, Paul. Okay, Great. cheers, buddy. Bye-bye. Thanks, mate. Bye. Could have done another hour there. That was so good. Oh, my God. Oh. Summer dancing I had to buy me some new jeans You had those cheap Chinese